You're listening to West of Center. I'm Jason Albert. I'm Skyping my eight-year-old niece, Sophie. I want a few kids' take on scale, like what's the biggest and smallest things they can think of. First, I drop the word scale, and there's some confusion. Like when you're at a doctor's office, you go on a scale. Oh, that's okay. That's true. That is another type of scale. I'm thinking of... So I clarify. Then I ask what's the smallest thing she can think of. That's pretty small. From a food. Yeah, that's small. All right. I think we're good. I need to expand my sample size, so I roused my two kids, Aiden's nine and Amian's five. We start thinking about scale by looking at this. Okay, guys. National Geographic Atlas of the World, seventh edition. We flip to a page with longitude and latitude lines crisscrossing a satellite image of the Earth. What's okay. that? And a line designating the equator. Here's Amian. Equator is the the equator is where it's warmer. Yeah, that's right. So, Amian, how big do you think the the sun is compared to the Earth? Which one's bigger? The sun. How much bigger do you think the sun is? About fifty feet wider. Yeah, maybe. Could be. The dialogue continues with this game we play in the family. The point is to make the parents feel better. I ask, you love mom as big as, and the kids have got to fill in the blank. I love mom as much as, it would be the biggest thing you could think of in the whole wide world, what would it be? Big as space. Wow. Any idea how big space is? I mean, how far does that go? No idea. Aiden, the big brother, adds some rationality when I ask, how big is that? How big? How long? Everlasting. Really? It just goes on forever and ever? Uh-huh. What's the smallest, itty-bittiest thing you can think of, Amian? An ant. I then turn the question on Aiden. What about you? Smallest thing you can think of? Rum or a dust bunny. Or a microscopic bug. As our clever primate brains grow, we juggle with the idea of the big, the small, and the in-between. But I want to focus this next hour on this one thing, El Capitan and Yosemite Valley. For any dreamer of the vast, It's the geography of big-time scale that makes us ponder. Let's think about horizon-stretching oceans, icy Antarctic abstractions in deep space. Things like oceans and space are hard to frame, mind-bending, but El Cap seems to possess that perfect symmetry, a combination of -of out-of-this-world massiveness and finite proportions. I mean, in one glance, with your eyes in wide-angle mode, the measure of this rock's height and width are in full view but it's still hard to comprehend, especially when you spot a climber high up on it. Attention all stations. Kong is going west. He is making for the Empire State Building. Stand by for further reports. So recall for a moment King Kong, back in his heyday, swinging atop the Empire State Building. Kong would still be less than halfway up El Capitan, with another entire stretch of Empire State Building and more to go. In today's episode, which is actually our first, I'm in Yosemite Valley to explore this, how we relate to scale. Manage it on something like El Capitan, or The Captain, a simple yet palpable name for what many say is the center of the rock climbing universe. And in a small corner of that universe is El Cap Bridge, a gathering spot of sorts for climbers both world-class and first-timers. At the foot of El Cap's Granite Ocean, a few try to put it all in perspective. But here's a good thing to know before we hear this. Several speakers refer to the nose route. That's the name of the first and most storied route on the wall. 
you remember looking up at this thing? I remember I was riding in a Volkswagen camper with a top that folded back and I was standing up in the top and as, as we drove in, I saw El Capitan and I just couldn't believe it. And uh, right then and there I decided someday I was going to climb it and I came back uh, uh, four years later and made the 33rd ascent of, the, of El Capitan, of the nose route. Face of El Cap was an improbable objective for me at my ability. You can hardly see people on the cliff when you look up from the base. Like some people come up all the time and ask, where are the people up there? I can't even see them. And then you have to like look really hard and like your binoculars to find some little tiny person in their own little world up there. First time I came was 98, so I was 18 years old. You know, I haven't been for a couple of years and I did the nose yesterday and it yeah. felt big again. It was about seven years ago and I saw a photograph on the front of a magazine of someone climbing on the nose and I was just like, what is that? I've been climbing in Yosemite for about three years. Climbed the face 16 times so far and each time you climb up, El Cap shrinks just a little bit. But it definitely shrinks as you spend more time here. It's like that guy from Beetlejuice came with his magic powder and sprinkled it on the cliff. That magic powder may be no substitute for grinding it out to make some of those looming 3,000 feet, as these guys say, shrink a little bit. After talking with folks at the bridge, I wander over to El Cap Meadow and lay down. Among the dry grass and deep sunshine, it's easy to dream big. To look at something as huge as El Capitan and think, yeah, I can pull that off. It's another thing altogether to execute. And to execute, climbers overcome many obstacles, the least of which is that sheer massive physicality of the 3,000 foot wall itself. In this story, we'll learn how two climbers take these big things and break them down to digestible bites, which when you think about it, is maybe the only way something so epic as El Cap becomes manageable. So we're heading up to see how some folks make it happen. It's a balmy autumn day, blue sky, billowing cumulus. I'm ascending a fixed rope to join up with rock climber Tommy Caldwell. He's here free climbing on El Capitan. But first, let's be clear about what free climbing is not. It's not free soloing. That's climbing rock faces with no rope and no protection. Free climbers like Caldwell use their hands and feet to ascend. They don't hang off the gear they place or use it for advancement. It's there for protection only, in case they fall. Their upward progress comes purely from their hands and feet. So we're back on the wall where Caldwell's as persistent a person as any. It's his fifth season, his fifth season working on his magnum opus, another worldly and difficult free climbing route up El Capitan. Caldwell calls this his Don Wall project. And without spewing numbers, let's just say it's a 3,000 foot climb stacked with thin, steep, and exposed climbing. Why is this a big deal? If it's climbed, it'll be the hardest big wall free climb in the world. Caldwell lowers down from climbing a tenuous section of rock. He's not been on it for about a year. Right. Nice, dude. That looked great. Yeah, it felt really That's good, bad. actually. Yeah. yeah, God. I'm not gonna make it look that good. <laughs> That little bit of self-deprecation comes from this guy. My name's Jonathan Segrist. I am 27 years old, I live in my truck, <laughs> but I call Colorado home. Segrist is Caldwell's newest partner for this project. Segrist is a young up-and-comer, one of America's strongest rock climbers. His body approximates the ideal of sinewy, gravity-defying lean. And this 120-pound spider seems right at home here, nearly a thousand feet off the deck. We're all comfortable standing atop a nylon platform called the portal edge. Segrist windmills his arms, forcing blood to his hands. The sun sets and El Capitan's east face captures a fading lick of orange-red light. Yeah, like a cold there, huh? A little yeah. bit. So when it gets good. During warm October days, they prefer climbing in the dark. That's when the granite cools and cold granite is stickier, it's easier to climb. So the conditions are prime. Right now, they're rehearsing moves on a top rope. Falls with this setup are small, low consequence, like when a gymnast dials in technical twist above the security of a foam pit. 
Seegers checks his safety knots. He's about to climb pitch seven. Yep, pitch seven. It's the pretty hard one. <laughs> it's the first the one. The first one is like kind of really hard. Yeah. But imagine it's your first L cap climb. Have you been to Yosemite before? No, this is my first time in Yosemite. So I've just been here for like uh, 10 days or something. Seagrist is that kid in the candy store. It's pretty crazy. Pretty crazy place. Really? Yeah. Talk about scale. It's like everything here is bigger. I've seen a lot of big walls too, but I mean, like the captain is its just something else. It's like, a, it like occupies a space in your periphery, you know? It's not like a wall you have to look at. It's always there regardless of whether you're looking at it or not. It's always in the corner of your eye. So for a moment, I want you to imagine you're sending the rope up to Seagrist. And like me, you've heard lots about the ballet dance of sorts on this route, and about the dominance of El Capitan. Up you go. To settle the nerves, you focus on what's smack dab in front of you. Individual mineral crystals appear, and micron-thick crusty lichens, rust-colored and gray and black and green. It's like one of those pointillism paintings, where you're zoomed in and all you see are the little dabs of paint. Suddenly, you can't resist the temptation to turn around. You're nearly a thousand feet up. There's granite cliffs everywhere. All of them appear featureless, smooth, as if polished with a buffer. And there's a swarming valley below that looks like a trained hobbyist scale model. With a flush of vertigo, you face the wall and touch the rope, making sure it's still there. As Seagrass says, it's a pretty crazy place. Let's get back on the portal edge with Seagrass. He's climbed some big routes, but he's mostly known for extremely difficult single-pitch climbs, things less than one rope length. I mean, obviously the scale here is way different. You have, you know, 30-some pitches and a lot of terrain to cover versus, you know, maybe 200 feet or something. But Seagrass seems Jedi calm, stoked to be learning from Caldwell, who's the undisputed master of free climbing El Cap. It changes your mind about what's possible, I guess, and it's really helped me approach things differently because to be with someone as experienced as him is, you know, it's huge. Especially in an arena like this where I don't really know what I'm doing. I mean, I, I know how to rock climb, but the rock's different and style's different and the logistics are totally wild. And so it's, I mean, it's, it's a totally new game for me for sure, but it's super cool to learn from Tommy because he's kind of the best. <laughs> so it's cool. Seegers pulls his climbing shoes snug. He takes a quiet moment to focus. You stay psyched. It's kind of nuts to come to Yosemite for the first time and jump on this route. That, by the way, is Tommy Caldwell. But he's doing it and he's making it happen. It's pretty awesome. He just has it. Yeah. <laughs> so far, it'll get more rugged when everybody leaves and it's snowing here a lot. We'll learn in a bit that snowing a lot is in the short-term forecast. But first, the evening winds die, and Seegers climbs off. Seegers stems his feet, locks down his fingers, yeah. pulls upward. Imagine awesome. people immersed in their element, being exactly where they want to be. Yeah, you see the little dish? Caldwell's a lifer. He's joking around, smiling, positive, still soaking this place in after 12 years climbing in Yosemite Valley. He seems downright dialed. Like it's his local climbing area, only with big wall consequences. But it couldn't have always been like this. So I probe a bit and ask Tommy about when all this wasn't so simple, when El Cap seemed out of reach. Here's where we learned about Caldwell's El Cap origin story. You know, my dad was like this bodybuilder, like muscle-bound guy that was just larger than life in every way. So anything that he did was kind of larger than life. So I saw El Cap climbers as that as well. Nice, man. Great. Cool. What was your first route? Did the Salafé. You do it with your dad? With my dad. I think I was 17. The point is, he had big eyes, big ambitions. No, I came to free it, actually. I'd done a lot of sport climbing for the last four or five years, and, and I was like a 514 sport climber, and I like pulled out a topo of the Salafé. I was like, oh, it's 13B. We should go do it. Let's break for a second. A 514 grade, that's about as hard as climbs get. Because when I was a little kid, El Cap was larger than life, but I was away from it for so long that 
my perspective changed and I thought I'd be able to just come and find the south day and it would be okay. And then I came and we spent five days on the route and I got completely bouted. Like it really worked. Didn't even get close to free climbing the thing. We, we made it up it, but it was, a, it was a really good learning experience. Caldwell's reality of El Capitan gradually became the reality of minimalism. Yeah, I mean, learning how to climb without too much stuff clipped to you. You see the aid climbers doing it all the time. They've got 50 pounds of gear clipped to them. And when you're free climbing, you just can't do that. So my, I was learning from my dad, who was used to the old ways of just clipping everything to you and climbing up. And I was trying to free climb with probably like 30 or 40 pounds of gear clipped to me. So I had to learn how to work around that. His bottom line, climb lighter, more efficiently. Yeah, and I figured out the logistical aspects of climbing light and just take it one step at a time so it's not nearly as overwhelming. The vertical world can be a Darwin's paradise. Successful climbers here must adapt to this high angle niche, not just because of the safety issues. These guys have their safety systems wired, but it's damn intimidating. Walk a straight line on a sidewalk and you know how easy it is. Do it on a bridge railing and you know how much exposure and nerves can affect even the simplest task. And just, it was scary. You know, it's intimidating up here and you're not used to it. Nice, man. So like many before him, over seasons, Caldwell adapted. And I just learned to love it. Like when it's really scary, it's hard to have a lot of fun, really. But when you feel the progression of, of learning how to be up here and getting better at climbing up here, then it becomes a lot of fun. And when things become less work, it's cool to remember back how much work it used to be. Seagrass nears the top of the pitch. Caldwell shouts up pointers. Okay, so uh, are you standing up on that foothold yet? Yeah. Okay. After completing the pitch, Seagrass lowers uh, to the portal edge. The two climbers eat, organized, fight a mangled zipper on their haul bag. And so here's what's interesting about how Caldwell and Seagrass manage something as big as El Cap. Where most of us would be tangled in a cluster of ropes, carabiners, and webbing, unnerved by the relentless yawn of space, the distance to go, Caldwell and Seagrass focus on the small things. Gears organized, ropes stacked. But there's more to it. I look at some of the handholds, a few point downward and measure five millimeters at most. And the footholds, feet are crucial, especially on a climb this technical, the best one is no larger than a dime. Staying on and falling off is also influenced by the micro degrees at which their hips are turned. Not two degrees this way, but maybe half a degree. It makes a world of difference. Conjure this in your mind. You're on the Empire State Building's observation deck, the 86th floor. That's about 10 pitches up for these guys, about one third up the wall. You step off the railing onto the sheer granite. Safely, you're not gonna die if you fall. The rope will catch you and then doing the most technical and physically demanding movements you've ever done in your life. It's like this for Caldwell and Seagrass. Sometimes a few millimeters of skin friction and body position allows them to connect to the next move and the next and the next one after that until they finish the pitch. That one pitch, one of 30, that's how they break it down from millimeters to the most daunting big wall. Oddly enough, this is normal everyday life for these guys. So it should come as no surprise to hear them joking and discussing the exact angle at which to perfectly grab a hold and text message. Yeah, you heard that right, text message. This is where the story of scale takes an unexpected turn. To be fair, we all know it's a time when most of us will text if we can text. Smack dab on El Capitan, at least where we're hanging, it's five bar phone service. Every so often, I notice my mic pick up the faint sound of a train horn. I've convinced myself the train horn is some wacky Yosemite Valley nighttime tour. You know, a classic concessionaire's tourist trap. But turns out it's Caldwell's incoming text message tone. After answering a few texts, Caldwell adjusts his headlamp. He's about to lead pitch seven without a top rope. Now he'll periodically place protection and clip the rope as he ascends. Uh, okay, you can wear this. <laughs> That'd be cool. Make sure you don't need it. Yeah, I'll be working hard. Okay. Caldwell high steps, reaches his fingers into a tapering seam. Seagrass belays. 
Gradually, our next crane as Caldwell gains ground. He soon a shadow cocooned in his headlamp's glow. About 80 feet above us, Caldwell places a few insecure pieces of gear. I think I feel a little timid on this pitch because Kevin zippered out like three of these pieces in a row one year. Ooh. Zipper means the protective gear in the rock pulls out as a climber falls. This only happens due to hard-to-protect rock features. The gear is normally super bomber and reliable, but sometimes the rock doesn't lend itself to solid placements. Caldwell climbs off again. Okay, climbing? Alright! Nice, dude. Nice, Tommy. Yeah! Solid on that move. Come on, Tommy. Go ahead and take that. <laughs> okay. I'm feeling quite in there right now. Yeah, it's tough, man. Good job. Thank you. Okay, back on you. Got it. Caldwell's resting on the rope secure above us. Last season, Kevin Jorgensen, his climbing partner then, took a big fall here. This is also where Chris Alstron, a filmmaker, positions himself to document the climbing. There you have to build up a little courage to trust it though. Because Kevin pulled this thing out and that thing out and that thing out below at one time. It fell like all the way down to the belay. You can faintly hear Alstron asking how far Jorgensen fell. How far is that? I don't know, like 80 feet or something. I look up at Caldwell. It's an 80-foot plumb line from him to the portal edge. I should know better than to get nervous. It's a safe, clean fall. But even the idea of a safe fall this high up is scary. But people like Caldwell and Segrist get used to it. I look over at Segrist, and he's checking his phone. A reddish glow illuminates his face. Severe weather warning. Winter storm warning in effect. <laughs> Okay, down a little bit. Okay. Oh, I want to read that in detail. That looks juicy. The weather report? Yeah. When there's the big red icon. Yeah. It's all flashing orange. We've already decided to repel late tonight. Here's why. Big and bad weather rolling in fast from the Pacific. Seegers reads the storm warning. So this is the weather for Yosemite National Park. Tonight. Probably cloudy this evening, followed by increasing clouds with showers developing after midnight. Low around 45. It's pretty simple. El Capitan should be icy and snowy in a few hours. Not a good forecast. <laughs> Some scoff at the use of cell phones in the wild. Most climbers embrace self-sufficiency. At first, I too thought texting diminishes El Cap's scale. And let's not forget, ironically, this climbing mecca is the fishbowl. The daily successes and failures of those inching up the wall are on full display. Yet, maybe cell phones only add a false sense of security. In most places up here, if it hits the fan, you can call for help. But in this high-angle world, rescues are most often a long way off. Remember, this is Caldwell's and Segrist's everyday life. They're doing normal stuff, like texting. It's just a bazillion feet off the ground. So for them, cell phones are just a simple way to check in with friends. And one of those friends happens to be climbing wonderkind, Alex Honnold. He's smack dab across the valley, attempting a second ascent of a new route up Middle Cathedral, a rock wall that in any other setting would command a starring role, but not exactly here in El Cap's shadow. So I'll set the scene. It's dark, super dark, and it's late, pushing 10 p.m. Temps are dropping. Caldwell's still leading out above. Okay. All right, dude. Climbing. Oh, great. Hey, I just got a text message from Alex. What did it say? It says, uh... In case you're wondering, we're epicking on top of Middle Cathedral right now. Not sure when or if we're going to get down. <laughs> oh, duh. wonder if they have a headlamp. We all look across the valley. Darkness. It doesn't look like anybody's got a headlamp. It doesn't look like it. <laughs> oh man, I wonder if they need a rescue. Ask him if he needs a rescue. Yeah, I will. Are you climbing right now? Uh, well, you can ask him if he needs a rescue. First. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's a lot of red on that screen, right? Because it gets stormed tonight. That could be kind of really a bummer for them. 
let's take a step back. First, climbers are known to have a dark sense of humor. Second, it's Honnold, a world-class climber they're talking about. So here's what happens. On Middle Cathedral, Honnold and partner have finished the climb and are descending. After Seeger's text to determine if they want to rescue, Honnold replies that are just temporarily unable to find the descent. For a moment, I sense some urgency. Sometimes bad things happen to the best. So to keep the karma equation balanced, yeah, I believe in all that, here's the spoiler alert. Honnold makes the descent unscathed. Okay, well, let's get back on the wall. Caldwell tops out and lowers down. That'd be rad to rescue Alex Honnold. I know. I, would... I really hope this happens, actually. <laughs> I'm pretty psyched on that. I would definitely spray on Facebook about that. <laughs> I'd all tag him, like 30,000 followers. Oh, what? Alex Honnold got rescued on a soft 13A. <laughs> It all seems like a casual chat, which I guess it really is. With the fixed rappel line dangling into the void, we're a half hour from the ground, not stuck here to freeze our way through the storm. And these elite climbers have the physical mobility, the skill set to see this rugged, big-scale landscape as a vertical playground. We're moving faster than an approaching low-pressure system is habit. It's hard for the uninitiated to comprehend all that goes into the safety systems and workings on the wall. Maybe it's similar to flying in an airplane, in that it seems totally improbable, like it's going to fall out of the sky. Only we all fly in airplanes, so we're familiar, comfortable, with the absurd notion of this big thing flying through the air. But the complex systems and skills of those who design the planes and fly them allow it to work. Same with these guys and their systems and knowledge and skill they've broken this 3,000-foot monolith into digestible segments. Caldwell and Seagrass pack up, dismantle the portal edge. I repel first, and yeah, I was by far the slowest. Cold hands, out of practice, super wary. When I peer down, the light from my headlamp vanishes. Remember that big, comfortable airplane I just mentioned? Mine just felt like it momentarily fell from the sky. I'm not well adapted, but the habits of safe repelling return, and it's quiet now except for the bats attracted to my headlamp. Down I go like I'm descending into a deep, dark sea. Once on the ground, I gaze upward. To the left and right, a few parties out themselves with their headlamps pinpoint of light. They're hunkering down, sitting it out, high up for the ensuing storm to pass. Then Seagrass, Caldwell, and Chris Alstron, the videographer documenting the climb, zip down. One, two, three, all of it routine. On the short hike out, we bump into a father sitting solo at the base of El Capitan's well-known nose route. In good spirits, he gave an exuberant hello. He said he was waiting for his two sons. They were descending before the rain and snow. That storm was about to hit full tilt. Back at my car, parked along El Cap Meadow, I looked for the two suns. Their headlamps gave them away, like stars in space, two solitary outposts thousands of feet up, slowly heading down. That fade into steady rain you just heard is for good reason. I woke to find I'd pitched my tent in a slight depression and water flows downhill, right? So I'm in a beat-down tent, broken zippers, leaky rain fly, that's stained with baboon shit from when my wife worked in Ethiopia. Not to mention that all my gear's soaked from the puddle on the tent's floor. It's too easy to feel sorry for myself. I poach a hot shower in Curry Village and thaw out. Then I head over to El Cap Meadow, and it's a changed scene. Hovering clouds dominate the view but I can see a few stretches of granite. The top two-thirds of the wall are smeared in snow and ice. And from an aesthetic's eye, it looks like something out of an Ansel Adams exhibit, although I'm sure that's not exactly how the climbers stranded up their feel. I find out later that a too-cold party is rescued off the wall. When I gathered audio a few days ago at El Cap Bridge, I spoke with Leo Holding, 
Holdings made a good life for himself as an adventure climber. And a friend of mine who speaks with authority on things such as calculated risk says of Holding, what a badass. Anyway, here's Holding during a sunny day at El Cap Bridge. I think from a climber's perspective, El Cap's the best, the best crag in the world. You know, it's, I'm from the UK, so this weather, I mean, I've seen more sun in the last three days than I have in the whole summer at home. Stable weather, easy access, amazing rock. There isn't anywhere else like this. I've traveled to lots of places and they're not like this. They're not, they're not as friendly. I mean, California, baby. <laughs> it sounds like an audio postcard for idyllic California. It may be that friendly ideal makes things smaller, tempting climbers onto the wall. But like the wintry scene in front of me now, Yosemite isn't always so friendly. When the weather turns, it's like the scale here can expand in an instant. In our next story, we'll hear more about that. So let's get to it. There's no doubt why the nose up El Capitan is an iconic route. It's got history, it's direct, yeah, and uh, it's about as Hollywood as any big wall can be. And the cool thing, whether you ascend it in two and a half hours, yep, people have climbed it faster than that, or a five-day slog, it's still a big-time personal adventure moving up, through, and past rock features that mean something to a worldwide tribe of climbers. There's the stove leg cracks, Texas flake, boot flake, changing corners, the glowering spot, the king swing, and the great roof. And right beneath that roof, tucked right up under it, that's where Sean Kelly finds himself, high up on El Capitan in April 1995. It was in the late afternoon, it was a little bit warm, and it was just really nice out. That's Sean, and it's day four of his and partner John Montecucco's nose climb. Sean's delicately climbing under and around the Great Roof, which, folks, is exactly that, a massive and protruding granite roof. So he's in a rhythm, with the world hanging under his feet. Sean soaks it in, feeling like he... I can enjoy this pitch. I'm not, I don't have, my hands aren't freezing. I can just relax, and I can look at the route. A relentless rock apron sweeps out beneath him. He's moving efficiently. We had kept to the schedule that we envisioned, Probably the only thing we weren't sure about was whether or not on the fourth night, whether we'd be at Camp 5 or at Camp 6. And it turns out we were at Camp 5. John and Sean get comfortable on a slim perch. Camp 5 is pitch 25 of 34. Almost to the top. Still within range of hitting the summit on the, the following day. On that starry cold night, a slight wind picks up. The two settle, mummied in their sleeping bags, and John keeps it positive. John is always the optimist, and so he's like, man, we are out of here tomorrow, man. This is gonna be awesome. And at the time when he was getting prepared to do the nose, I just was so tired of hearing about it. This new voice, that's Molly, Sean's wife. And he would have friends over all the time, and they would just talk nonstop about how they were prepared and what they were taking and what he was packing and what he was doing for each, you know, the first six pitches. And yeah, I just, I got tired of listening to it because it was an obsession. Obsession, addiction, they kind of blend together. And any significant other, partner, spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, knows what Molly's talking about. As it got closer and closer, yeah, I was talking about it constantly, figuring out what exactly we needed to bring to be prepared. These guys did their homework, packed lots of pile clothing, extra polyprolong underwear, beefy down jackets, though they did forego reliable portalage since there's ample sleeping spots peppered here and there on the route. In case the weather turned a little iffy, here's what they did bring. The portalage's sealed rain fly. Rain jackets and pants, two Gore-Tex baby sacks. Topping it off, two slightly marginal sleeping bags, one of which was goose down. You'll hear more about these sleeping bags soon when we rejoin Sean and John at Camp 5. But right now, here in his kitchen, Sean examines a dog-eared topo or map of the nose route. I remember looking at this little sketch drawing of the nose probably for hours 
And now looking at it now, it's almost laughable that they got the nose on one half of a, of a six by eight sheet of paper. Today, this irony of scale isn't lost on Sean. It looks like it's such an insignificant thing on this little piece of paper. <laughs> and, uh, and so the reality of the climb and what I see in front of me is, is kind of funny, actually. With the precision of accurate ratios, a complex geologic ecosystem rendered tidy on a single page, a neatly compartmentalized and enticing adventure on which anyone could suffer a spectacular failure. So along with the topo like this and all the other stuff mentioned up top, John and Sean set off. In a really sweet muscle car, he had a pristine 67 Buick Skylark. And who wouldn't be stoked arriving in Yosemite in that ride? Unfortunately, the day before jumping on El Capitan, the Skylark jerked and stuttered and broke down, and was towed. A good reason to get bummed. But let's not forget, though, Sean's partner, John, the optimist. And he was like, hey, man, we can do this. If I'm with John, we can get it done. They make the ritual stop at the climbers campground and gather a short-term weather forecast. And they had a five-day forecast on a dry erase board, looked like clear weather through Thursday, and we thought, that's plenty of time. Even if it rained a little or something along the way, I think we could have, <laughs> could have handled it. Five days of stable weather seemed solid. They're experienced climbers with nearly 20 years of experience between them. This was Sean's first multi-day climb, but these two got after it, making steady progress. So we're back up on the wall, just before things get dicey. Here's Sean again, climbing under the great roof. I can just relax, and I can look at the route. It's been a long, hard climb so far, with the usual scrapes, delays, and tactical bumbles of first-time parties. But they make it to Camp 5 uneventfully. The weather, that's been uneventful too. It's supposed to hold through Thursday. And the following morning is Thursday morning. Should be their last day. Smooth sailing, so to speak. They wake early before sunrise, brew up, and pack haul bags. We got up early. We got up in the dark. We knew that that last day was going to be a long day, so we wanted to get the first pitch off before it even got light. On the small, isolated ledge, we were kind of getting our gear together, and John said, Sean, hold my sleeping bag for me. Usually, a low-consequence exchange. And so I tucked his sleeping bag under my leg and I continued to mess with the rack and get ready for the next pitch. And as I was doing that, there was something that was out of my reach that I needed to get, a sling or something. And Sean rolls his butt over to reach this piece of gear. And his sleeping bag slipped out. I'd forgotten that it was tucked under my leg and we watched it float away. All John had to say about it was, who cares? We're going to the top today, so it doesn't matter. Unfazed, Sean ventures up. I took off with a headlamp in the dark, and probably halfway through that pitch, it started to get light, and just as it started to get light, it started snowing. And I just imagined that it was a little squall or something that was just gonna push through and we'd just continue on our way. And it continued to snow harder, and, and it wasn't letting up, and then kind of felt like, holy cow, we are really socked in here. Like, this is for real. By that point, I had made it to what's known as the glowering spot on the nose. Glowering spot, a brooding name for a small pedestal in the sky. It's such a cool spot. You're standing on a triangle-shaped piece of rock that's maybe 20 inches, basically just about enough room for your feet. And then the wall kind of comes up straight up your back. And then as it gets up to your head, it arches over your head and creates um, well, protection from snowstorm. <laughs> so I was standing there out of the storm. He leans carefully in and out of the storm, like some perverse before and after scenario, wet then dry, wet then dry, just like that. I remember it being kind of a safe place. Like I didn't really want to leave that spot because leaving the glowering spot meant going back out into the storm. Snowflakes blow horizontally. And I could see my partner down there on belay not in such a nice place, so. <laughs> 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 
Sean could also see a party at Camp 6 up above. In the whipping wind and wetness, they'd back down, returning to their camp. Sean barks to John below. They communicate and decide that reversing the moves back to Camp 5 seems super sketchy. So Sean waves and shouts, getting the attention of the climbers at Camp 6. And so I yelled up to them to ask them if there was any way they could throw us a rope because we were kind of in a pickle. What I remember was that what are the chances of this rope getting to me? From where I was standing, I couldn't move. The party above peers down. They throw the rope. It uncoils in a perfect arc. The rope just laid out and the wind carried it and it brought it right, right into his hand. hand. Bingo. Honest to God, I didn't have to move at all. And they were a good 120 feet above us. Using mechanical ascenders, both Sean and John struggled to Camp 6. There, on a sliver of a ledge, they hunkered down with Aaron Silverman and Matt Francis. These two, new to our story, carry similar gear to John and Sean. No portalage, but warm clothes and a sturdy seam-sealed rain fly. It's 10.30 in the morning, and about now there's a deluge. Water pours down the granite, and it's beginning to freeze. As the latecomers to Camp 6, Sean and John didn't exactly get preferential seating. And so John and I were pretty well pushed into a corner and that situation didn't really change because at that point we weren't friends. <laughs> we were just four guys on a wall and they were there first. <laughs> the weather gods brew a foul cocktail of wind and rain and sleet and snow and it never lets up. If you look at the nose straight on or if you look at El Cap straight on and then you locate Camp 6 on the wall you'll notice that there's a very defined V-shape. In other words, a funnel right into Camp 6. Each party huddles under the rainflies, and those rainflies fester into leaky wombs plastered with condensation. Water soaked their socks, water soaked their polypro, water soaked their hats and gloves, their rain gear. By the end of the day, I was through five layers of clothes. I was quite literally soaked right to the skin. Night falls, temps drop. Being skinny, you know, 150 pounds, I wasn't very happy. In other words, I was getting scared. I knew that I was cold, and I also knew that there wasn't much opportunity for that situation to change for a very long time. But Sean imagines he'll be warm soon in their remaining down sleeping bag. They agree to delay that semi-tropical fantasy, saving it as a motivator, delayed satisfaction. So Sean fights his waterlogged chill, his shivers, barely hanging on. Finally, the down bag came out. It didn't really change the situation that much at all. And it was probably only a matter of an hour or so before the, that bag was wet as well. At this point, John knew no one was going to sleep. He'd suffered through some heinous storms in the Alaska Range. And John, being a mountaineer, was definitely the calmest one of the four. And he made it clear that no one was going to sleep. He's like, just so you guys know, no one's going to sleep on this ledge. Sleep's a dreamy gateway, during which it'd be too easy to shut it all down, slip away. So John devises this survival plan. Tell stories and punch each other. They say it apparently gets the blood moving. And this, mostly the punching, went on for hours, until about 10 or 11 that night. So we're going to break away from this misery on the wall for a moment and check in with Molly, Sean's wife. Okay, rewind your brain a bit to Thursday morning, about the moment this climb took a tailspin. So I woke up Thursday morning. She wakes about the same time Sean contemplates his next move at the glowering spot. That's when the guys at Camp 6 threw him the rope. And I just had a sick feeling in my stomach, and I just felt like something was wrong. So Molly does what any concerned person would do. I called the park service and I said, is there any sort of climbing registrar? Do people register before they climb? Because my boyfriend should be off or maybe today might be the last day. I don't know. I just want to see if everything's okay. There's no register for El Cap climbers. But the park service promises Molly they'd look for climbers on the nose. They knew any time now a winter storm would wallop Yosemite. So Molly keeps herself busy all day to keep her mind off Sean. Finally, she heads out to a friend's for late night poker. I go to my neighbor's house 
play poker and I came back pretty late around 11.30. My answering machine was blinking and I played it and I'll never forget it. It was someone, this guy I think named Rick from the Park Service who said, this is Yosemite Search and Rescue, call us right now. So I called him and he said, yes, your boyfriend and his partner, they're now with two other people and they are calling, they're, they're telling me that they are telling us they need a rescue. We've been signaling them. And, and we found a, a sleeping bag on the valley floor and somebody from that party is saying that they're hypothermic. And I just remember saying, oh, well, yeah, that would be Sean. So Molly's Just the Facts Ma'am call with Search and Rescue ends with this primal question. Is there a chance that they could die tonight? And he goes, oh yeah, of course. But just don't think about that. Late that night, back in Yosemite Valley, the storm's in a lull. There was a little bit of a clearing. Sean peels the rain fly back lifted our heads out from the fly and looked down and we're like, wow, you can actually, we could see we're not in the clouds right now. And then we saw some big lights down in the valley floor and we're like, oh man, there's people down there. There's, they know we're up here. Search and rescue had clustered in El Cap Meadow. They point a tractor beam of light way up on the nose route. They holler with a bullhorn, trying to get the attention of the group pinned at Camp 6. The climbers, in turn, communicate with their headlamps. Search and rescue need to know the basics. So here's what they ask. How many of there are you? Is everyone alive? Is anyone injured? Well, the question that they needed the answer to six times was, do you need a rescue? Before the question was even asked, of course, we discussed that scenario. My partner, John, was, was very reluctant to give in to a rescue. He thought, we can ride this out, but I was not feeling that way. I was feeling like if I have to be this cold and this wet for six more hours, I might not be around. So I was like, yeah, we need a rescue. Fortunately, I wasn't alone in that. I wasn't three against four. Um, I believe Aaron was also feeling pretty down. Turns out Aaron, a climber in the other party, feels desperate too. They agree to a rescue come daybreak. But knowing that we were gonna be rescued, meant that I just had to make it through the night, and that I could deal with. I knew I could pump myself up enough to do that. At Camp 6, the storytelling and punching begin in earnest, anything to stay warm and alert. In the meantime, due to the turbulent wind conditions and low visibility, a helicopter rescue becomes Plan B. The first choice, run snowcats up a road leading to the high country, drop rescuers off at a trailhead, and hike eight miles to the top of El Capitan. After all that, rappel into Camp 6. That plan bogs down on step one. The snowcats snail along, inching forward in an outrageously deep snowpack. It got light and I kind of, we poked our heads out from, again, from the, from the rain fly. And it was actually fairly clear. We turned around and our gear was under a layer of about four inches of ice completely frozen to the wall. And Aaron and Matt's gear and ropes, all of it's entombed in thick ice as well. About having to be rescued or not, turns out no one had to say, I told you so. <laughs> it was pretty evident that we made the right decision. <laughs> Second, uh... Enter the helicopter. It flies right up close to the wall. Blades were uh, maybe four feet above our heads and four feet off the rock. Like literally like right, right above us. I was like, wow, that's crazy that they got that close to us. They got close enough to us that they threw us a tennis ball and we caught it on the first toss. Attached to the tennis ball is a stuff sack which contains wool gloves, wool hats, and a two-way radio. Then over the two-way radio, the pilot gives a quick rundown that went something like this. Okay, guys, I've got a crew of um, 12 people on top. We're going to send down two static lines to you. One of the, the rescuers will come down on the static line to make sure that you guys are all coherent and not suffering psychologically or that you're capable of getting out of here on your, on your own power. And at that point, uh, once that happens, I need you to move, and I need to move fast. 
because there is another wave of the storm and everything looks nice right now but it's going to change in a hurry and what i don't want is for my guys to be stuck up here because of you guys so i need you to move fast so, so that's, that's all, all you really, really need to know, know at this point. point and that was it and we we're like holy shit <laughs> A rescuer wraps down, quizzes the climbers. She asks the date, their location, makes them count. The climbers all get the okay. Then Sean is attached with a short tether to Aaron. Two ropes dangle from El Capitan's rim way above. They are to ascend in pairs, but on separate ropes. Sean's troubles, they're not over yet. His rope was icing up. It's tough for mechanical ascenders to grip icy ropes. Sean sets his ascender and... It would slide back about a foot before it would grab on the ice. It felt like two steps forward, one step back. So Aaron shimmies ahead, as far as the tether allows. Then, with a small metal tool, he scraped Sean's rope free of ice. Then it's Sean's turn. Back and forth it went like this. And then he would go ahead of me and scrape the rope some more. And we did this for 600 feet. Two-thirds of the way up that jug. Jug, that's a word climbers use to describe ascending a rope. I didn't care if someone cut the rope. And when I got to the top, I was absolutely thoroughly as physically spent as I've ever been in my life. Hanging by those threads, I guess it's easy to make the abstraction and see them, us, as insignificant among the big time scale of this place. And maybe perhaps without Molly's call or John's optimism or Sean's gutting it out, this story has an altogether different, grim ending, a different telling. But they all make it off. John, Aaron, Matt, and Sean, and the 12 rescuers inserted on El Cap by the crafty pilot. El Capitan and the nose route gets wiped clean by the storm. Now a blank slate, really. Cleansed of this narrative, ready for others to weave their story. Maybe that's what's so interesting about the big wide open places or towering mountains. What we get when they reveal our human scale may be at best some well-grounded perspective. But all this began as a way to explore scale in nature, and how dynamic scale is. Really, for Sean, Aaron, Matt, and John, El Cap was within reach. Its scale manageable until an atmospheric ripple shut them down. And then, those last 600 feet of rock became an eternity. I like best how Jonathan Segrist describes El Capitan's scale. And so let's leave it on this note. Talk about scale, it's like everything here is bigger. I've seen a lot of big walls too, but I mean like the captain is it's just something else. It's like a, it like occupies a space in your periphery, you know? It's not like a wall you have to look at. It's always there regardless of whether you're looking at it or not. It's always in the corner of your eye. This has been episode one of West of Center. You can find out more at westofcenter.org. There, you can sign up for the podcast at SoundCloud or iTunes. And if you really like what you heard, you can also help support us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>